Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and for self-care, I reserve some time for reading every day. And I'm Michael Ralph, and my self-care is when I'm working in my workshop. And I'm Sarah Dolenz, and my self-care is finding time to go to the gym after school and on weekends. Professional development requires ongoing dialogue and reflection. So lean in as we discuss education research, reflect, and enjoy a beverage together. Today we are drinking Corona Extra from the Cerveceria Modelo Brewery. Yeah, I'm not a big beer drinker, so I'm enjoying um, a Blackberry Sage Quirk from Boulevard. And I want you all to see, uh, Lawrence, you delivered delivered the the lime, so I'm literally I'm literally brought down my fruit cutting board, and I am cutting that lime this second. Mine, mine smells pretty good. Uh, so this is a wild departure from what we usually drink on the show. Um, and it was at the direction of beer vizier, Aaron Matthew. And so, uh, so this is, this is our medicine this month. I'm, uh, I'm squeezing. So I'm pouring mine into a mug as opposed to, uh, shoving the lime into the bottle. And so I'm squeezing my lime into my, my beer mug. Now I'm just going to drop it right in there. Okay. What are we doing today, narrator? The importance of mathematical reasoning is visible in conversations from pandemics to politics. Sarah Dolance joins us to discuss how a numeracy framework developed for citizens can inform math instruction for students. Later, we read research connecting instructional choices to student perceptions of classroom goal structures. From tasks to evaluations, are we incentivizing growth? Finally, Sarah shares her experience teaching to a hybrid classroom of simultaneous in-person and remote students. Let's get started. And so once again, you may have noticed we had three voices in our intro because we are joined by guest host Sarah Dolans. Welcome, Sarah. Hello. Sarah is a second-year math teacher at Blue Valley Southwest High School. She is a teacher looking for ways to disrupt the current paradigm of mathematics instruction in ways that foreground the inherent beauty of math. Um, we are super, super happy to have you, Sarah. Thanks. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I've been a longtime podcast listener, so it's fun to finally be in it. And for our first segment, we read the PIAAC Numeracy Framework, A Guide to Instruction. This was published in 2019 uh, by Donna Curry in the Adult Literary Education. My, so I cued this paper uh, because the the framing in the abstract was specifically that this uh, this analysis uh, this analysis framework this anal- the original data was about. Um, understanding adult numeracy, which is um, sits next to like literacy is your ability to interpret, extract information from written texts. So numeracy is a, a similar set of skills related to numerical or quantitative ideas like math ideas. And so, um, and so in their framing, they explicitly talked about how what they were seeing in their data with adults um, had some direct applicability to um, adolescents and working with students. And uh, that was really intriguing to me. And so, that, so I threw it in here to see, to see if it was true. One of the things that I found interesting in this paper, it makes a lot of suggestions about how to approach, you know, presenting, not, not just presenting the students with mathematical information, but opportunities for them to work with math 
medical problems to enrich the diversity of the experiences they're having when they're working with mathematical problems and to acknowledge that there are different cognitive skills related to mathematical problems than simply um, executing an algorithm for solving these problems. Um, they didn't come out and make a critique of legacy practices in mathematics, but a critique of those can kind of be inferred by what they're saying, that if we teach, if we continuously teach our students decontextualized problem-solving algorithms, then there's not going to be a whole lot of retention uh, of their understanding of mathematical relationships. It seemed to offer strategies to kind of make word problems less scary, because that's something I see a lot from my students. And so they flock to the decontextualized problems, because those are straightforward. Those are the ones that they are more likely to understand. And once you add in the context and the um, distractor information and, um, you know, the, as, as you increase the cognitive load to the problem, that's where they start to shut down. And so this paper really started to talk about the framework for how to assist students in making it not as, as difficult or scary. And it, and it offered ideas as to why um, it might scare students or it might not maybe not scare students but turn students off from wanting to do problems like that yeah you said framework and i think that's probably a good place to start is um they is the way i was understanding it was they were talking about um identifying some of the specific uh they said numerate behaviors i like that phrase i probably going to repeat that in my life now um, but the different the different things that students and adults do um, that express or enact their numeracy, their their understanding of mathematical concepts, and so kind of uh, unpacking what those look like, um, and then also the enabling processes, uh, which are some of the ways that we can help them engage with engage with those behaviors and practice those behaviors. And then what they emphasize that resonated with me the more than anything else was the uh, competency as a continuum that proficiency is not a yes or a no, but that we get better at these skill domains in more nuanced ways over time. And um, they actually, they set up that in mathematical settings a lot um, they've seen instances where you're presenting like an algorithm as Lawrence, as you were describing, here's this heuristic, here's this, this procedure that you're supposed to execute. And of course, procedures are either executed successfully or unsuccessfully. And so you end up having this artificial presentation of a binary of either they can or they cannot. Um, when in reality, you've got this growing proficiency over time as you walk this journey towards expertise. And so recognizing the subtlety of that progression lets you then build a system of support or this differentiation model to be able to support students with, with productively challenging work as they grow their competency in these areas. So really, you can organize it as these numerate behaviors. These are things that they that they can get better at. And then these um, this continuum of proficiency within those behaviors that we can differentiate to support growth in. So I kind of, I kind of put it in two silos. There's those things we can get better at those things. And one thing I liked in their framework was, so 
to me, they kind of broke it up into six enabling factors um, that are being addressed within any sort of task. So there's the context, real world, real world knowledge, mathematical knowledge and conceptual understanding, adaptive reasoning and problem solving skills, beliefs and attitudes, numeracy related practices and experiences and literacy skills. So to me as a teacher, knowing these these factors is helpful because if a student is struggling, um, I can see which of these factors they might be struggling with. Maybe they're struggling with the literacy skills. Maybe it's the beliefs and attitudes. So having these factors kind of all come into one sort of task allows for a teacher to better pinpoint what needs a student have um, when differentiating. So one of the things that I appreciated when I'm thinking about my own classroom experiences and encouraging my students to actually like build their understanding of the things that I'm teaching in a science class, but it's still the same idea is that if they don't understand it and it's not important to them, they're not going to retain it. And a lot of the things uh, that this paper was saying to improve our math education experiences is that when we provide context, we provide opportunities for students to place importance on the things that they're learning. So when we teach decontextualized math, the o- it only exists for the purpose of this classroom. But when we teach contextualized mathematics, well, then it has a greater, it may have a greater importance on the rest of the world and the rest of our lives. So that's an opportunity for them to um, an opportunity for them to place more importance on it and when uh, they were talking about um, reasoning and problem solving and mathematical knowledge and literacy skills those are really about understanding because even if something is really important if you don't understand it you can't retain it either so working on avenues to improve their understanding and a lot of times we we kind of have come to this um, practice where if we understand how to execute the algorithm, that's understanding the mathematics. And those two things are, they're separate. One could execute the, the algorithm without necessarily knowing what the math means. And so building more with the relationships to build understanding, uh, that those two aspects were really emphasized in, in these uh, practices. Well, and I'll point out maybe as a maybe as a teaser to what our second segment's going to be because I think that I'm overlapping the two papers. Um, but that context also um, is used. Multiple contexts are necessary because we shouldn't assume that our students are a monolith. And so, having something that's applicable for some is not necessarily to say that it's applicable for everyone. And so, there's value in having multiple contexts so that you can reference lots of instances where these different. Uh, uh, numerate behaviors can be applied uh, so that you can find ways to make relevance to different students with different lived experiences in your classroom, uh, both for exposing students to more more sources of application that maybe they wouldn't see in their day-to-day lives and also um, to foreground different lived experiences, to foreground different um, perspectives throughout your application. If I'm only ever applying um, data analysis within the context of biological data, that's going to say something to folks who maybe that doesn't resonate with quite as strongly. And there's lots of other instances also. And so um, not just to have a relevant context, but to develop many relevant contexts to invite participation um, and to center different experiences and different interests over the course of a unit or a semester. I think in direct connection with the the context and world knowledge, um, students have different backgrounds, students have different interests, and when students are able to draw off of things that they already know, I think that creates a direct you know connection with the math and can help students 
pull in strengths that they might have that they didn't know could be utilized in math class. And so that all helps to to kind of build up their confidence in math, because usually that's where I see a lot of students, you know, lacking with their confidence because it doesn't directly apply to them. They don't see how it direct it directly connects with their interests. And so allowing for a broad range of contexts and interests to be brought into the classroom can help students find connection and see the beauty within the mathematics. Uh, I I had an appreciation of the beliefs and attitudes discussion as well, uh, as it kind of uh, generally um, matches other things that I've I've applied regarding this. Like when we talk about having a fixed mindset or a growth mindset, or we 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 talk about how our identities influence our understanding of information. If we if we identify as someone who can't do math or as not a math person or you know bad at math or uh, math is scary. If we have these kinds of beliefs and attitudes, then it reinforces our brain's, you know, deprioritization of the importance of this information, of the importance of this experience. Oh, this is not for me. I not, not I don't have any drive to focus. I don't have any drive to apply myself. And and so recognizing that the beliefs and attitudes of your students regarding math is something that that actively impedes their ability to wrestle with it. And as teachers, it's something that you have to navigate uh, more than just presenting a clear algorithm to them, navigating those beliefs and attitudes are an important part of improving your instructions with those kids. Well, I think there is that. So what I liked the most, it's a weird thing to like the most, but what I liked the most was the um, discussion of differentiation, to be honest. And so they lay out some examples of how you might craft a prompt um, that, you know, whether how transparent it is, which information in what they're giving you is relevant versus extraneous, right? Like if I have a two paragraphs of information, you really only need two bits in there. Um, that might be fairly well hidden. And so it's a pretty, it's a complex task of just prioritizing and triaging that information versus you can imagine, you know, one of the more sterile math problems where there are three sentences and there are three labeled variables and the equation you need is the one that has those three variables in it. And so it's very transparent what information is salient to solving the problem. And so how how that transparency, you can manage that to either expect more or less um, analysis of relevance in what you're presenting. And so that's a way to kind of, you know, dial, it's a dial you can raise up and down. One thing I like about starting with a, a context, a real world context, and not necessarily just with the, the naked math problem, as we typically refer to it, is students have really, for the most part, they have a really good intuitive mathematical ability of ways to think about numbers and to think about quantities. But the disconnect comes from when they have to formally use some sort of symbol or notation. And so thinking about, you know, any sort of real world problems about nutritional labels or talking about um, splitting a cake and thinking about spices of cake is students can reason through that and it helps them start to see the connection between the, the symbolic representation and the contextual representation what I liked was they showed the manifestations of those things in a problem. So like they're, you know, on the first page, the very first table is just four problems that are generally the same skill at different levels of difficulty. And that's very much like what I could imagine offering my students is um, you can self differentiate, which of these problems is the most challenging problem you feel ready to attempt. 
and then they can try to solve that one. So instead of me trying to pick and choose how much should I offer, I can say, here are a couple of different choices. Now you can differentiate for yourself which one is the appropriate um, amount of given information you're ready to sort. You know, how much do you want this narrowed down or how much can you can you sort for yourself? By getting more experienced with identifying some of these more subtle ways to tweak the difficulty of math problems, we can allow our students to identify the challenges appropriate to their growth. And that they put real examples in their paper to exemplify how that could happen, right? Because that sounds like highfalutin math language, right? Like, sure, we can do all of that, but what do I actually do? Like, like, what do I actually do in my classroom? And so they show, like, here are, here are a handful of examples of a problem that practices the same skill at different levels of ability along this continuum of proficiency that they describe. And here's what it looks like at different levels of that continuum, which helps me understand as a teacher how I might apply that within my own topics, within my own subjects, uh, with my own students. Uh, Sarah, I have a question for you since you're the uh, since you're an actual math teacher. Uh, did you get any ideas of things in your practice that you might change or look at differently uh, while or after reading this paper? Reading through this paper, I did get some ideas for um, how I could use it in my classroom. And differentiation is already something that I'm trying to do. Um, but the difficulty is always, well, how much how much should I prepare for these different levels of students and how do I help all of them at once? And so one thing I I liked was the increasing cognitive load on the problems really came from you do some of the research and sort through it and see what you can find, not just creating a bunch of tasks for students um, who who are ready for that higher level to do, but more more deep thinking problems. Um, I also liked that they were designing different problems around kind of the same topic. So, you know, they talked about providing several tasks at all levels so students could participate in, you know, for example, um, talking about different calories and um, food nutrition labels, but students could pick and choose where they were at. And I think one thing that we should do as teachers is create a minimum kind of baseline of where students should get to. Um, so we can have a conversation as a class about, at minimum, you know, what whatever skill I wanted students to practice. And if students exceeded and went above and beyond, that's amazing. That's great. Um, but we all can, at every level, talk about a spe- the specific type of topic and problem that we were talking about. And I think this framework builds in really well student metacognition, thinking about where you are at and what the next steps in your learning need to be. So always thinking about walking into the classroom, walking into every day, ready to build on what you know and ready to better yourself in some sort of way. And I think that's the message that needs to be coming from from math classrooms is every day you need to come in, you need to be ready to work and be better than you were when you when you arrived. Make better mistakes. For the second segment of the show, we're going to discuss the article, Is Everyone in Class in Agreement and Why or Why Not? Using student and teacher reports to predict within class consensus on goal structures. 
This was written by Lisa Bardash, Takayua Yanagida, Alexander J.S. Morin, and Marco Lufenegger. Written in Learning and Instruction 2020. So I picked this one out in particular because I was really interested in their connection between a teacher experiencing emotional exhaustion and classroom characteristics. Um, Sarah, as context, I I do not read the papers ahead of time. Um, I choose them based on their abstract alone. And so the, uh, I saw that like, that's really interesting and relevant right now. So, uh, so I'm, I, I want to see what that's about. Um, I did not realize that it was so heavily focused on like statistical practices. And so even though I'm really excited about those, because that is like right in my wheelhouse, I acknowledge that that is not for everyone and very often makes for bad radio. So I regret, I regret all of that. Yeah. I was most engaged with the theoretical framework of the paper Uh, And then they said, and we're going to see how all of these parts of the theoretical framework may or may not be connected to all of the other parts of the theoretical framework. And it got real thick in the middle. And uh, it kind of, uh, uh, man, there's a lot there. There's a whole lot there. Uh, one of the one of the things that I really liked early on in this uh, paper, when they were setting up what they were going to do, they contrasted three different goal structures for classrooms: um, the performance avoidance goal structure, the performance approach goal structure, and the mastery goal structure. And uh, what I really appreciated is that they they kind of, they just said, "Hey, hey, audience." These three structures exist. Performance avoidance structures are making sure you're not the bad student who is bad at things. Performance approach structure means doing everything you can do to be the, you know, the top students who are great at things. And then the mastery goal structure is about growing your competency in whatever it is that you're doing. And the mastery goal structure is clearly the most advantageous for students. So for the rest of the paper, we're just going to focus on that one and ignore everything else. And that just made me feel great. That just made me feel great. I loved it. They laid out this framework um, for goals, for describing the goal structure of a classroom, which really you can think of as the classroom culture, which I think is something that is worth thinking about as teachers. And they, they put it down as um, this acronym of TARGET, uh, which is stands for the task, the autonomy, the recognition, the grouping, the evaluation, and the time uh, structures that teachers are putting in place. And so uh, how we approach each of those issues or problems contributes to this classroom culture that coalesces and can be measured uh, as we think about goal structures. So one of the fi- one of the one of the findings is really consistent with their with their theory is that maladaptive teaching behaviors contribute to or undermine rather um, some of these class the classroom culture that you have establishing. I think the thing that surprised me the most, and maybe not surprised me, but it stuck out to me was the the teacher anxiety and the teacher stress coming back and. students being able to recognize that um there was one line that explicitly stood out to me um it said teachers who experience higher levels of anxiety when teaching a class might be less able or have less cognitive capacity to offer such personalized feedback in a way that shows equity and uniformity across all students in a class um so i never had really thought about or connected that teacher stress and anxiety would 
create inconsistencies just because of everything that a teacher has to process in a day and go through that the cognitive load that stress and anxiety can take on can no matter how much time and effort you put into planning and trying to put all these experiences together it is going to affect it and students are going to feel it even if you don't show your students that you are stressed and anxious they still have a way of being able to tell so that that stuck out to me um and that's super consistent with some of the the recent research that we've seen on um, not only do they notice, but it, it impacts their own well-being, right? Some of the uh, student uh, saliva analyses show that teacher stress and anxiety directly, I think they've even gotten it to causal, directly causes increases in student stress and anxiety as measured by some of their um, stress uh, hormones that we can measure that we can measure in their saliva like it literally increases their physiological stress response when we are stressed um and that's that i don't think that shocks a lot of people but especially i may imagine that i can compartmentalize right i've i really i'm having a hard go of it and i've just i'm going to put that in a box i'm going to keep that quiet and i'm going to go in i'm going to work every day today and those sorts of results show it's not in a box, right? We bring all of us into our classroom. And so if I'm stressed and anxious, that's going to impact my students. And I think, and this is getting a little outside of the, the, the purview of the paper, but I think that um, maybe like that, that like noble concept of I can compartmentalize and I can come and I can do my job and I can maintain my teacher persona and I don't have to let that emotive thing Thing and recognition of the stress that you know is going on in my other world into this world, uh, I think that that's a lost opportunity. Even if you even if you manage in some way to succeed that kind of a thing, even if you succeed in that, um, I don't know that that's necessarily the wisest move for your classroom. Because when a student asks you, you know, how are you doing or how was your day or you know, they ask you a question and you can say, well, actually. I had a hard time getting to sleep last night. I woke up in the middle of the night. I couldn't go back to sleep. You know, I had some things that I was worried about and they kept me up. Um, that transparency is incredible, an incredible opportunity for um, relationship building because there are students in your classroom who maybe not have, obvi- they're not sharing that they have gone through things like that, but they understand that experience. And so, you know, knowing your students and building relationships is a super great leverage. So um, if you're anxious and that stress is something that you're trying to bottle up and contain and not express, one, you're failing at doing that because they're going to be stressed and they can see it anyway. And two, since you're going to fail at the first opportunity, you might as well leverage it as much as you can for other goals that you have with those students. And to piggyback on that, that's that's exactly what folks are looking for in graduates. So we should be taking this opportunity to develop emotional intelligence because that's one of the top things requested from workplace individuals who are serving is they need graduates who understand how to navigate um, and um, manage their own emotional experience. Emotional intelligence is among one of the new topply requested um, uh, skills for students who are graduating. So not only can we, not only is it an opportunity, but it is being explicitly requested of the folks who are employing and working with the students who are graduating from our schools when we're done. That people, we, we are being asked to develop this in our students. And I think, you know, teachers being role models for students, part of being a role model is being able to 
share in a healthy way that you are not doing okay or that you are stressed and it's okay to feel those those emotions that I think students as they are growing up and learning and you know trying to figure out who they are in the world they don't know how to share some of those emotions and um, express those in healthy ways and so I think teachers being real and honest with their students allows for the perfect opportunity for students to see exactly how you know, how it is and that it's okay to feel those things. So I don't think teachers trying to go into school and try to push it off to the side and teach content is the best way to do it. I think we really need to be open and honest and build those relationships. I know I like yours too. I think, I think they both can go together because, you know, the emotional intelligence is what employers are looking for. Yeah, he doesn't care, but they, not, not to dismiss that, but I just, I know that you don't care, Lawrence, but I, I mentioned it because I really did like at 10 o'clock today was in the middle of a, a presentation where we're talking about world economic forum surveys, which I know that you don't find them persuasive, but there are a lot of folks who do. So if you're in a conversation with an administrator who really does care about workplace readiness, you need to be able to quote 2020 survey data that says employers want emotional intelligence in their top 10 requested skills. So they will get the hell off your back and let you do mental wellness Mondays. So like I have never had resistance from peers or administrators or building support specialists. Uh, I've only I've only been supported by educators in my in my domain. So um, but 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 um, if I have to make a pitch to an organization for millions and millions of dollars about reasons why they should fund mental health wellness programs in schools, that argument is definitely going to go in. So uh, I'm going to put that and and in my little bag of tricks here for the future. And I really do appreciate that. Uh, but all of this wasn't in this paper. So what was, what was the headline of this paper, Ralph? I was really looking at the couple of extra. So I, I kind of imagined these target um, measures, which are all being uh, evaluated by a, a survey, like an external existing survey, the, the GSQ. And so these sort of these six indicators are all response variables in my mind. And so I was really comparing the couple of other indicators against these target responses um, in both of these samples. It's a two sample design, right? So, so your instructional clarity is strongly negatively correlated with your differential teacher, teacher treatment, which is, to, which is to say there, it's very likely that in classes where students perceive that you are not giving um, equitable treatment across your students, they also don't understand your instructions. It's very likely those two things are happening together. So it's not necessarily that you're, that you're being unfair because I'm, as, a, as a faculty member, if I was to see my students say, you're not being fair, I would probably, it's very likely that I, could, I would want to react with uh, resentment or defensiveness and saying, I'm really, I'm, I'm doing my best to be very fair and equitable. This, that's not a fair critique. Like it's very easy to set this, set up this antagonistic um, position when in reality, I just need to work on my communication of my expectations and the clarity with which I give those instructions, because those two things are so tightly connected. It's, it's really unlikely in my mind that uh, instructional clarity is also really closely correlated with um actual teacher unfairness. I think that's unlikely. So uh, a clarity of instruction is a mechanism to reduce the perception of unfairness. And that can be actionable. If you've got somebody who's struggling with this 
this perception of unfairness in their classrooms. That's an actionable thing. If I, I, I'm already, I feel like I'm being very fair. Okay. Look at the clarity of your instructions. Cause if you can clarify what you're doing, that might improve the, um, the classroom culture that is emerging that currently is one of antagonism. That's, that's not a, that's not the headline, but that is, that is a thing that jumped out at me. That finding makes sense to me because I feel like students are, especially if they feel like they are struggling in a class, um, from my experience, typically feel like they are the only ones struggling and that everybody else understands. And so it may seem to them like that teacher is being unfair and favoring one group of students over the other when in reality, they're just not understanding the directions or the instruction that's being given. Um, And so allowing teachers to focus on being clear in any sort of instructions or um, presentation of material can help students find the, the root of the problem. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to pitch the headline because I, the thing that stood out to me the most, it's a, it's a detail thing, but I just, it really did stand out to me. I was pretty, cause I, I was initially interested in this paper the most for connections between emotional exhaustion and other meaningful variables. Uh, so I really wanted to find if I am feeling drained, which I would imagine is a common phenomenon right now for a number of reasons. But if I'm feeling exhausted, what kinds of things should I look for in my classroom culture that could maybe address that, right? I don't want to feel emotional exhaustion anymore. So what could I do to act on that feeling that might maybe have a a meaningful chance of impacting the culture that's emerging? And so if you look in table two for us, if you look in the second table in their paper um, and you go down the first column, emotional exhaustion has a has a they bolded it to say it's significant. It's the highest uh, negative correlation with the consensus on task. And so what that what I operationalize that to mean in my head is if I'm coming home at the end of work every day and I am exhausted, I feel like I have to push a rock up a hill every second of every day. And I'm just I'm tired from pushing a boulder all day long and I got to go in tomorrow and I'm going to push that same boulder up that same hill. It's ve- it's likely, it's very likely that my students don't have a good consensus around the, the meaningfulness of the tasks that we're doing. And so what that means is that we don't have a good consensus around um, the the quality of the design of the tasks, which should whether they're personally meaningful, whether they're challenging, whether they stimulate students' curiosity to learn more. And so, uh, and I think that that pairs really well. I think that that theoretically makes sense. If I'm having to if I'm having to herd cats all day long which is just exhausting because students are asking, why am I doing this? Students are trying to find ways to get out of it or to, to do the you know, minimum possible investment into those things. Um, it's very likely that they're going to, re- that they would report on a survey that they don't see these tasks to be meaningful. They don't see these tasks to be challenging or they don't see these tasks to be something that, uh, that provokes their curiosity, which is, I could do something about that. I could reevaluate what tasks I'm asking of them to try to find something that better connects to their lived experience, something that better connects to the applications that they really see as meaningful in their communities, which, if I succeed, builds a classroom consensus around a meaningful mastery goal structure, which then is going to correlate with me feeling less emotional exhaustion, which is good for my ability to sustain my work throughout the year and persist in my career long term, which is good for everyone. And so I feel like that's a nice um, actionable piece of, I know if I'm feeling exhaustion, I don't need a survey for that. I know if I'm feeling emotional 
emotionally exhausted. If I am, I can make changes to my task structure, which are likely to produce a a classroom culture that reduces my emotional exhaustion. And that seems really useful to me. This is if your emotional exhaustion is coming from your classroom. And Lawrence, I I think what you're saying is true. We can't always rely on this framework to fix every, you know, issue in our classrooms about how, you know, if it's stemming from um, our, our emotional exhaustion. But I do like the target framework because it does refer to six, six things that we can focus in on. So, you know, do I need to allow for more autonomy? Do I need to have more voice and choice from my students? Okay, well, maybe if, if that doesn't work and I already have that, do I need to think about grouping and how I have students working together and sharing their ideas out? Do I need to think about how much time I'm allowing for students to, um, to ask questions or the time that I spend um, giving whole class instruction or small group instruction? So I think that the framework allows for teachers to explore different pieces in their classroom to try to find some sort of solace or um, find, find some success. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think for me, the most compelling was just being introduced to those, you know, Matt, that, that target acronym in terms of mastery goal structure, like think about these things for your kids in the classroom. Uh, and if things aren't going the way you want, or even if they are, and you want to, and you just generally want to improve, re-examine them and find ways to, uh, approach these with a little more, uh, thoughtfulness in your relationship with your kids. We're in this together. Uh, yeah, for our third segment, uh, which Ralph has, you know, freshly titled In My Classroom, because we can't go one episode without Ralph making up a new segment title, uh, we've got a prompt for discussion. How do you or how would you manage a mixed classroom with both synchronous remote and in-person students. Uh, And I'm going to start out by saying I am not facing this problem. I am not expected to hold a class with both an in-person audience and a distance audience in home. It is something that I have chosen to do, but I was not expected to do just with the amount of curriculum that I do have for my district which we're not 100% expected to get through, but to try to, you know, make it as normal of a year as possible. The needs of my students um, and where they are at in their mathematical abilities. I have been holding synchronous remote and in-person classes, um, not the whole time, but I've been trying to engage students in both scenarios and settings, um, at least a little bit every day. What complications does having two audiences in different settings present in the classroom besides maybe what I would have, I don't know, maybe it's not obvious. What, what are the complications of doing this? So my, my usual teaching structure would include a lot of group work, a lot of student discourse, a lot of um, kind of deeper thinking tasks. And with the students being remote and in person, just the way Zoom breakout rooms work, it's hard for me to kind of manage the flow of everything. So having students go into breakout rooms while I'm also managing um, in-person groups is just probably possible, but it, but very difficult and impossible. And I feel like I'm not serving all students the best when I do that. So what I've been trying to do is giving students some 
at least some sort of lesson at the beginning of class, um, engaging through warm-ups and using technology to allow students at home to contribute to the class. And so I can see their answers and get that formative feedback um, and data from them. And then giving the the, the at-home students some sort of assignment or something to work on that I know that they're going to be able to do. So the hard part about giving them an assignment about new material that we've covered is they typically have a lot of questions. And if I send them on their way about new things, it doesn't get done because they have questions and they they get demoralized and give up. So I try to give them something that they do know and so that they can feel successful, but they're still engaging and thinking mathematically. Um, and then I have my in-person students do some group work or have have some of that in-person smaller group setting stuff so I can work with them, check in on them. And I try to mix mix up the type of problems that I'm giving. So it is covering some stuff that they did at home, some stuff that they did in person. Um, so they have the chance to ask questions and get the help that they need. All of the technical things that you described in order to make this real was a lot of work. And it was, but it was work that you chose to do to meet your goals. And see, now I'm sitting here impressed thinking, well, what could I do? right? And that's how it should work, that your freedom to take those risks and push yourself into this place to solve a problem that others are just saying that's too hard a problem to actually solve, that is how we inspire teaching to new practices to, so that we can improve the quality of education for as many as possible. Whereas when we say that's too hard and we'd have some teachers that are bad at it, so from an equity position we won't, what we're doing is we're ensuring the only thing we deliver our kids is the lowest common denominator. So I'm proud of your district for giving you the freedom to make that choice, and I'm really happy uh, about what I heard from you, and I'm mad at my district. And uh, so that's where I sit on this. I think there's a lot of cool platforms that exist to allow my students at home to still be participating in class. Um, so they're not just listening to me talk for however long, cause that's boring. Um, so, you know, like Pear Deck or Nearpod, um, Desmos has been amazing for math. So just finding ways to connect with those students, bring them in, you know, I'll, I'll pull up like the, the, the dashboard and read through their responses and give some feedback like, oh, hey, Lawrence, I saw you did this. Um, make sure that you remember to do this. Or, hey, uh, Michael, I thought you did a great job. Good, like, think about this next. Empower each other. How was the beer? Oh, yeah, that's a thing we do. Um, the lime was great. I got three. I got three wedges in this glass. And man, I can taste that lime. I will say I really don't like the lime in the first part of the of the beer, like the first handful of drinks. You may have noticed, those of you who see my video, um, the second two bottles that I drank, I've actually drank, this is my third bottle now, is uh, I put the lime in and then I've been t inverting them to try and mix them a little better because those first couple of drinks are so limey when you first dump it in. I drink it on a beach. I drink it, you know, waiting for the next volleyball match to try and, you know, level out some of my electrolyte balance. Um, but it is a yellow and 
a light yellow at that. It's... Sarah, how was your seltzer? Sarah, how was your seltzer? It was good. It was good. The I had the blackberry one. I think I like the cherry one the most, but they don't sell it out of the brewery yet. So waiting for it, but it has a hint of sage, which is refreshing. I want, I want, I want that. That's, 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 that's my official review. Well, that's the end of another month, Sarah. We really appreciate you joining us. It's been a lot of fun to talk about math topics and mathematical thinking Uh, for any of our listeners who have really enjoyed hearing from you and want to learn more about um, the things that are important to you, or maybe what you've created, where can they find those ideas in your online presence? You can follow me on Twitter at dolence underscore math. Um, And then I really like Peter Lilladal's Thinking Classroom Framework. So he just released a new book called Building Thinking Classrooms. So I would recommend checking it out. It's all about um, getting mathematics visual and getting students collaborating together. And he even has some great ideas on his new website about how to get students to do that even on an online presence. Thanks for joining us for another month. We really appreciate what you do. These are incredible, extraordinary times. And so I just want to say that what you do matters. And I hope that this has been helpful to you. We'll catch you next month. And until then, discuss research. Struggle well. Try, reflect, and try again.